Good morning, Risen Church. Today's scripture reading is from John 1, 1 through 16. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Risen. It's good to be with all of you again. It's good to see you. I'm Pastor Rich. If you're new and you're visiting us, I want to welcome you to our church. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. And I hope you all had a great week, was able to relax a little bit, spend some time with family, uh, rest a little bit from work. Uh, But if you are new, I want to encourage you to fill out the connection sheet below this video. It's in the description. It's a Google form. You fill it out and our Welcome and Connect team will get back to you and try to get you connected to the church, which are the people, this, this beautiful community that God is building. And whether it's uh, community groups, uh, virtual or uh, men's and women's ministries, or even our outdoor sort of social distancing walks that we have, we will love to get to know you, meet you, have you get to know us. And every year, the first Sunday after Thanksgiving is, is really the start of the Advent season. And the word Advent is just the Latin word that means the coming. So for the first four Sundays in December, leading up to Christmas, our church is going to reflect on the coming of Jesus Christ into this world 2,000 years ago. And you know, I think in many ways, we're all looking for the divine among us. Whether it's in our leaders or in our families or in our workplace or among our friends, you know, we're looking for perfect love, perfect leadership, perfect wisdom and compassion, perfect courage and justice. We're really looking for transcendence, transcendence 
among the frailty of humanity, transcendence above the brokenness of humanity, and even among the expectations and desires of our hearts that always seem to elude us. And friends, this is really the definition of hope, isn't it? A longing for something better, something that transcends our circumstances. And so for the next four weeks, as a church, we're going to take a look at all the different kinds of ways that our search for hope, our search for the divine, our search for transcendence really finds its fulfillment and reality in Jesus Christ. And so today, we're just going to take a look at three things. First, we're going to take a look at the context of our passage. You know, in any kind of interpretive endeavor, context is king. For example, if someone were to say, I'm going to pay you back, depending on the context, that phrase could have two completely different meanings. If they're friends, if they have a history of going out and eating together and covering each other, then the phrase naturally means I'm going to monetarily reimburse you the covered amount. But if they're arch rivals, if uh, they're competitors and enemies, that phrase means revenge, doesn't it? It means retaliation, getting even. And so it's really important for us to understand the context of John's gospel. That, that's the first thing we're going to take a look at. Who is John? Who is he speaking to? Uh, who's his audience? What's his purpose for writing this gospel? And then secondly, we're going to take a look at the king's lack. And then lastly, we'll take a look at a better redemption. So first, the context. You know, you and I, we could cheat a little bit here uh, and we could skip towards the end of John's gospel because at the end of his gospel, we don't have to guess. John tells us why he wrote it. John tells us why he wrote this book, this gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so you see these two titles, Jesus the Christ, and two, Jesus the Son of God. These are clues, because the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, maybe a lot of us think that's Jesus' last name. It's not his last name. It's a title. The word Christ is a, a simple translation of the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. Now, why would John call Jesus the anointed one? Well, it's because back then kings were anointed with oil. You know, today in our country, when the president is sworn into office, he takes an oath to faithfully execute the office. So when John calls Jesus the Christ, he's calling Jesus the King, the Anointed One, the one everyone is longing for and hoping for to bring that wisdom and that compassion and that protection and, and justice. You know, for those who grow up with a certain kind of privilege, maybe 
a mortgage instead of rent, access to good schools, the means for tutors and other kinds of help, parents with the economic freedom to oversee their children without having to work double shifts or night shifts, and many other things, it may be a little bit difficult to fully understand Israel's situation during John's lifetime. It may require a little bit of work to cross the difference. But for others who experience economic suffering, barriers to rise above and even oppression and even a lack of favor from their nation's leader, they'll be able to understand exactly what the nation of Israel was going through. You see, historically in Moses' day, Israel had been enslaved by Egypt. And this treacherous historical moment had formed them forever. Even to this day, the Jewish Passover celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from their suffering and their bondage and their oppression in Egypt. Eventually, Israel would establish national independence under King David and King Solomon. But quickly after, Israel would again be conquered and taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And then after that, Cyrus of Persia. And then after that, Alexander the Great of Greece. And then after that, Caesar Augustus of Rome. And in John's current day, in Rome, Israel was a severely oppressed people group. They were an underprivileged group. They were looked down upon, seen as inferior, ignored, and even mistreated. As non-Roman citizens, Israelites were limited to low-level income jobs. They weren't able to purchase property. They weren't given a fair trial. And Israelites were constantly subject to abuse. In the book of Acts, it says that the Roman guard had stretched Paul out for the whips. But Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. So they withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You see, what's happening in this text here is the Roman guards are about to beat Paul because he is a Jew. They're not going to give him a fair trial. But then they find out that Paul, strangely, surprisingly, uniquely, is a Roman citizen. He either bought it, he was either granted to it. But nevertheless, because he was a Roman citizen, they pulled back. But most Israelites during Paul's day, during John's day, under the governments of Rome, did not have Roman citizenship. And so the expectation 
for a Christ, a Messiah, a king, meant freedom and deliverance, compassion from God, and justice for Israel. This is the context. Friends, maybe you can relate. Or maybe you know of someone who's experienced things very similar to Israel's experience. But I believe that understanding Israel's circumstance and God's compassion for them helps us understand God's compassion for the broken, the weak, the oppressed, the disenfranchised in our country today, around the world, eternally. This is God's heart. This brings us to the second point, a king's lack. Now in our passage, John, he doesn't just say that Jesus is king, John goes further. He says, Jesus is God. In the beginning of his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this passage might throw off a modern 21st century person like you and me, but to John's readers, this, this passage made complete sense. And it made complete sense for two reasons. First, the Greek word here for word, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That Greek word for that word is logos. And logos means word, it means someone's word, but it also means reason, logic. It also means meaning and purpose. For example, uh, you can use it like this. Here's what Richard said, right? Here's Richard's logos. Here are his words. Or you can use it like this. Here's what Richard meant, right? Here's Richard's logos. Here's the purpose of his words. And then the Greeks would quite frequently use this word logos on a very high level to not only understand the purpose or the meaning of someone's words, but also to understand the purpose of life, the meaning of suffering, the rhyme and reason of death. You see, the word logos, these are the questions and the thoughts that inevitably everyone asks. These are the questions and the thoughts and the discussions that influence culture. What is the purpose and meaning of life? Is it about personal fulfillment? Or is it about stewardship and responsibility? Is it about mental and emotional health? Or is there something to spiritual health? In other words, is it about self-help and knowing ourselves? Or is it about spiritual help 
and knowing God. From Aristotle to Kant to Darwin to C.S. Lewis, these are the questions that prompt thinkers, researchers, and authors to to devote their lives to writing the books that we find in the aisles of natural science and social science and philosophy, psychology, and and self-help. You see, John's readers are just like us. They're trying to figure life out. They're trying to find motivation to live. They're trying to think and ask questions. Why do I do what I do? Why do I wake up every single day? What's my motivation? And so what John does is he gathers all the questions that his audience is thinking. He gathers all the questions that you and I are thinking and he directs them to Jesus. He says, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the purpose. Jesus is the meaning. Jesus is the answer. But there's a second thing that John is doing in the beginning of this passage. He's not saying that Jesus is just a king that has the answers that you're looking for. He says, Jesus is God. You see, John's words here mirror almost very identically to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, in the very first words of the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. You see, what John is doing in the very first words of his gospel, he is evoking creation. By saying that the word was in the beginning, John is saying before Jesus took on flesh, he was the word of God. He was the creative agent in the Trinity. When God spoke, that was Jesus creating things and bringing life and light out of darkness. And Paul does the same thing in the book of Colossians. In Colossians 1 verse 16, Paul says, For in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Now, what is the significance of this statement? Why does John and Paul make such a resolute effort to demonstrate and affirm that Jesus is not only the answer, Jesus is not just this teacher or this king, this expert authority on life. Not only that, why do they go to the great lengths to prove the point, to make the statement that Jesus is God? Well, it's because if Jesus is is just a king, if he's just a teacher, then his capability over all our questions and all our struggles and even the injustice that we experience and see in the world is limited. He's human. 
So he'll have the same struggles that we have. He'll have the same temptations that we have. He'll have the same exact failures that we'll have. His pride and ego will get in the way. He'll desire comfort over sacrifice. He'll feel, um, he'll fear conflict over courage. He'll be tempted to people please. He'll be limited in knowledge and wisdom. He'll get decisions wrong. People will suffer. If Jesus is just an earthly king, he'll also experience exhaustion and burnout and eventual death. He'll be limited in character, in power, and in time. And he'll never be able to give us hope then because he'll never be able to transcend the brokenness and the frailty of humanity and sin. He'll never be able to break the wheel. You know, I just mentioned the word sin and I kind of want to talk about this concept called sin. Because usually when we hear uh, this word sin, most of us typically understand it as a word that means bad things, right? That describes bad actions. For example, love is good, hate is sin. Or nurture is good and abuse is sin. Or integrity is good and corruption is sin. But the Bible actually explains sin as more than just actions. The Bible describes sin as more of a power. It's an influence. Let me explain. Uh, Christine Hoover is a Christian blogger. And in one of her articles, she writes how she struggles with envy. She shares about how when she sees her friends doing certain things, um, posting certain things on social media, it causes a personal crisis of discontentment, of depression. She says, she'll think, if I only had this, then I would be happy. This is the thought that constantly comes into her mind, even though she knows it's a very naive assumption. She writes how she hates envying others. She hates feeling that way. But her immediate reaction is to want people to envy her. Right? She is the one that wants to post things and just see the comments flow. But she knows that this would be a vicious, positive feedback loop. It would be an addiction. And she shares how she wants to be freed from this, this power that rules her and, and sucks the joy out of her life and takes her attention from God's purposes for her and can even harden her heart uh, towards others and towards God and become bitter at him. She writes, I desperately need a better redemption. 
So you see, sin is not just an act, it's a power. And friends, how is sin influencing you? And what is your hope in the midst of it? Are you simply looking for the next best thing or are you looking to break the wheel? Are you looking for a better redemption? This brings us to the last point, a better redemption. You know, in verse 14, John tells us that Jesus became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word for dwelt is skenao, and it actually means to tabernacle. A tabernacle is like an old word that we don't really use. It's a Latin word, and it's where we get the word tavern. And the tabernacle was where God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38, it reads, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so you see, God uh, in the Old Testament would dwell with his people. He would tabernacle with his people and they would be able to experience the presence and communion and fellowship with God. But at the same time, there were really limitations to this kind of relationship. You see, it was hard for Israel to truly believe that God understood them, that he was one of them, that he understood their struggles and their brokenness. He seemed too far and distant. He seemed too high and mighty. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God's appearances to his people, it would be through this you know, cloud and this smoke and fire and even thunder and lightning. And so God hatches a plan, an Advent plan, a plan to truly not only dwell among his people, but to be his people to truly understand their struggles and their brokenness, and also to finally break the wheel, the power and the influence of sin. So the Father sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to finally move the spiritual needle, who's not just a king, who is also God, and possesses this spiritual force, this transcendent force. So Jesus advents onto the scene 2,000 years ago and he tabernacles, he dwells with his people and he never bends to the power of sin in his life. His pride and ego never get in the way. His integrity never betrays anyone's trust. His grace never cuts off the failings of others. His compassion always overrules his own comforts. And his courage never buckles to the powers that be. Therefore, between this spiritual battle, this spiritual war uh, between good and evil, Jesus and sin, Jesus is finally the one who overcomes. 
Every single person before Jesus lost to the power of sin. They buckled to the power of sin, but not Jesus. He comes and he transcends and he breaks the wheel. And in his final act, the final act of his life, his dying breath, Jesus takes all our sins all upon the cross and like a cosmic, like like a spiritual grenade, Jesus sacrifices himself so that he can put to death the power of sin and its dominating force. Let me give an illustration of how Jesus does this. You know, if there's a toxic work culture, how do you fix that? You know, you know how, how do you stop its force and influence? How do, you, how do you break that wheel? Well, you don't change it uh, by being the most toxic person ever, right? You can only change it by transcending above it by rising above it, by not letting it affect you, by not letting it stain you and harden you, by not letting it turn you, by not letting it bring you down. So it means being selfless. It means being courageous. It means looking out for others. It means protecting others. And it also means embodying tremendous and tremendous grace. You see, in the same way, Jesus has the power to change the culture and the influence of sin in the world and in our families and in our hearts. But he does it by rising above sin, by not letting it stain him. You see, in his grace, Jesus says, Christmas is about me. It's about my advent. And I have come to tackle the biggest problem of humanity, the power of sin. And Jesus says, I've beaten it, but only by letting it take me down, only by paying the penalty for sins myself, which is death. So friends, because of what Jesus did, you and I are forgiven now. We're free from the guilt and the condemnation and the judgment of sin before the most holy, most perfect, most all-knowing, all-seeing person in the entire universe. He sees us to the bottom, but he loves us more than we could ever have imagined. And secondly, we're also free from the power and the dominion and the influencing effect of sin doesn't mean that you and I will never sin again, but it does mean by the grace of Christ, by the help of his spirit, when we look to the cross and we dwell upon his love for us, by the transforming power of his grace and his love and forgiveness, you and I can experience spiritual victories united to the spirit of Christ. Risen. Christmas is about the cosmic and the eternal and the powerful hope of Christ. But it's also about the ground, the street level, the practical, the daily reviving hope that you and I need because 
sin is stubborn. Though its dominion and its power has lost its effect on us, we can still feel like we're going two steps forward, one step backwards. But when we look at Jesus' affection and his compassion for us, it'll soften us. It can transform us. It'll melt away our envy and discontentment because we have the adoration and the wealth and the love and the security of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we see his love and grace for us, it'll make us loving and gracious. When we see his forgiveness for us, it'll make us a forgiving person. When we see Jesus' discipline and courage for us, it'll make us courageous. Friends, when we look at Jesus, the more that we do, we'll experience a new advent in our hearts, a continual renewal of his grace and his power and hope. You know, we live in a historic time, and they'll be writing this year into the history books. But strangely, I feel that the records will be filled more with the influence of sin. But Jesus has given us hope. He's broken the wheel and in faith in Jesus, we have access to hope. We have access to redemption in our brokenness. So friends, come and find hope. Come and find a better redemption. Because at the cost of his life, Jesus has redeemed us. And while you and I are still alive, he has a plan to redeem a whole lot more every single day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you know our hearts and you see the, the frailty and the brokenness of humanity and you know what we're longing for and, and you sent your son, but not just to be an earthly king, but you sent your son as God himself. And as God, he took on flesh and went to the cross for all our sins. Father, would you help that melt our hearts? And as we see that love, and as we see the resurrection, and we, as we see Jesus in glory right now, that it would give us tremendous hope. I know it is so hard, but Father, Help us to believe in you. Help us to be united in you. Help us to know the reality of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. So Father, would you constantly renew our hearts with your grace, soften our hearts with your compassion for us, your humility, your unrelenting love. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.